Section 5 of France in the 19th Century. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. France in the 19th Century by Elizabeth Latimer. Chapter 3. Louis-Napoleon's Early Career. Strasbourg, Boulogne, Ham. Part 1. There is a theory held by some observers that the man who fails in his duty to a woman who has claims upon his love and his protection never afterwards prospers, and perhaps the most striking illustration of this theory may be found in the career of the Emperor Napoleon. Nothing went well with him after his divorce from Josephine. His only son died. The children of his brothers, with the exception of Louis-Napoleon and the Prince de Caninot, the son of Lucien, were all ordinary men, inclined to the fast life of their period, while the descendants of Josephine, honoured and respected, are now connected with many European thrones. The son of Napoleon, called by his grandfather, the Austrian emperor, the Duc de Reichstag, but by his own Bonaparte family, Napoleon II, died at Vienna, July 22, 1832. The person from whom, during his short, sad life, he had received most kindness, and to whom, during his illness, he was indebted for almost maternal care, was the young wife of his cousin Francis, the Princess Sophia of Bavaria, who in the same week that he died became the mother of Maximilian, the unfortunate emperor of Mexico, who exactly thirty-five years after, on July 22, 1867, was shot at Carretaro. The Emperor Napoleon had made a decree that if male heirs failed him, his dynasty should be continued by the sons of his brother Joseph. Lucien, the Republican, was passed over, as well as his descendants, and Joseph, failing of male heirs, the throne of France was to devolve on Louis, King of Holland, and his heirs. Joseph left only daughters, Zéned and Charlotte. Louis Bonaparte, when he died, left but one son. Louis Bonaparte was nine years younger than his brother Napoleon, who by no right of primogeniture, but by right of success, was early looked upon as the head of the family of Bonaparte. He assumed the place of father to his little brother Louis, and a very unsatisfactory father he proved. Louis was studious, poetical, solid, honourable, and unambitious. His brother was resolved to make him a distinguished general and an able king. He succeeded in making him a brave soldier and a very good general, but Louis had no enthusiasm for the profession of arms. He hated bloodshed, and above all he hated sack and pillage. He had no genius, and crooked ways of any kind were abhorrent to him. When a very young man he fell passionately in love with a lady whom he called his Sophie. But his brother and the world thought the real name of the object of his affection was Émilie de Beauharnais, the Empress Josephine's niece by marriage. This lady became afterwards the wife of M. de la Valette, Napoleon's postmaster-general, who after the return of the Bourbons in 1815 was condemned to death with Ney and la Bédoyère. His wife saved him by changing clothes with him in prison, but the fearful strain her nerve suffered until she was sure of his escape unsettled her reason. She was not sent to an asylum, but lived to a great age in an appartement in Paris, carefully tended and watched over by her friends. But whether it was with a Sophie or an Émilie, Louis Bonaparte fell in love, and Hortense de Beauharnais, the daughter of Josephine, gay, lively, poetical and enthusiastic, had given her heart to General Duroc, the Emperor Napoleon's aide-de-camp. Therefore both the young people resisted the darling project of Napoleon and Josephine to marry them to each other. By such a marriage Josephine hoped to avert the divorce that she saw to be impending. She fancied that if sons were born to the young couple, Napoleon would be content to leave his throne to the heir of his brother Louis, whom he had adopted, and of his stepdaughter, of whom he was very fond. But Louis would not marry Hortense, and Hortense would not have Louis. 
At last, however, in the excitement of a ball, a reluctant consent was wrung from Louis. Then Hortense was coerced into being a good French girl and giving up Duroc. She and Louis were married. A more unhappy marriage never took place. Husband and wife were separated by an insurmountable, or at least unsurmounted, incompatibility of temperament. Louis was a man whose first thought was duty. Hortense loved only gaiety and pleasure. He particularly objected to her dancing. She was one of the most graceful dancers ever seen, and would not give it up to please him. In short, she was all graceful, captivating frivolity, he rigid and exacting. Both had burning memories in their hearts of what might have been, and above all, after Louis became King of Holland, each took opposite political views. Louis wanted to govern Holland as the good King of the Dutch. Napoleon expected him to govern it in the interests of his dynasty, and as a Frenchman. The brothers disagreed most bitterly. Napoleon wrote indignant, unjust letters to Louis. Hortense took Napoleon's side in the quarrel, and led a French party at the Dutch court. Intense was the grief of Louis and Hortense, Napoleon and Josephine, when the eldest son of this marriage, the child on whom their hopes were set, died of the croup at an early age. Hortense was wholly prostrated by her loss. She had still one son, and was soon to have another. The expected child was Charles-Louis Napoleon, who was to become afterwards Napoleon III. Soon after Louis Napoleon's birth, King Louis abdicated the throne of Holland. He said he could not do justice to the interests and wishes of his people, and satisfy his brother at the same time. He retired to Florence, where he lived for many years, only once more coming back to public life, that is, in 1814, to offer his help to his brother Napoleon, when others were deserting him. Napoleon was very fond of Hortense's little boys, though in 1811 he had completed his divorce, had married the Austrian archduchess, and had a son of his own. Louis Napoleon has left us some fragmentary reminiscences of his childhood, which have a curious interest. Quote, my earliest recollections, he says, go back to my baptism, and I hasten to remark that I was three years old when I was baptized, in 1810, in the chapel at Fontainebleau. The emperor was my godfather, and the empress Marie-Louise was my godmother. Then my memory carries me back to Malmaison. I can still see my grandmother, the empress Josephine, in her salon, on the ground floor, covering me with her caresses, and even then flattering my vanity by the care with which she retailed my bon mots for my grandmother spoiled me in every particular, whereas my mother, for my tenderest years, tried to correct my faults and to develop my good qualities. I remember that once arrived at Malmaison, my brother and I were masters to do as we pleased. The empress, who passionately loved flowers and conservatories, allowed us to cut her sugar-canes, that we might suck them, and she always told us to ask for anything we might want. One day, when she wished to know as usual what we would like best, my brother, who was three years older than I, and consequently more full of sentiment, asked for a watch, with a portrait of our mother. But I, when the Empress said, Louis, ask for whatever will give you the greatest pleasure, begged to be allowed to go out and paddle in the gutter with the little boys in the street. Indeed, until I was seven years old, it was a great grief to me to have to ride always in a carriage with four or six horses. When, in 1815, just before the arrival of the Allied army in Paris, we were hurried by our tutor to a hiding-place, and passed on foot along the boulevard, I felt the keenest sensations of happiness within my recollection. Like all children, though perhaps even more than most children, soldiers fixed my attention. Whenever at Malmaison I could escape from the salon, I was off to the great gates, where there were always grenadiers of the Garde Impériale. One day, from a ground-floor window, I entered into conversation with one of these old grognards who was on duty. He answered me laughing. I called out, I know my drill. I have a little musket. 
then the grenadier asked me to put him through his drill and thus we were found i shouting present arms carry arms attention the old grenadier obeying to please me imagine my happiness i often went with my brother to breakfast with the emperor when he entered the room he would come up to us take our heads in his hands and so lift us on the table this frightened my mother very much dr corvisart having told her that such treatment was very bad for children the day before the emperor napoleon left paris for the campaign of waterloo hortense carried her boys to the tuileries to take leave of him little louis napoleon contrived to run alone to his uncle's cabinet where he was closeted with marshal Soult. as soon as the boys saw the emotion in the emperor's face he ran up to him and burying his head in his lap sobbed out quote, our governess says you are going to the wars don't go don't go uncle quote, and why not louis i shall soon come back quote, oh uncle those wicked allies will kill you let me go with you the emperor took the boy upon his knee and kissed him then turning to sue who was moved by the little scene he said quote, here marshal kiss him he will have a tender heart and a lofty spirit he is perhaps the hope of my race after waterloo the emperor who passed one night in paris kissed the children at the last moment with his foot upon the step of the carriage that was to carry him the first stage of his journey to st helena after this hortense and her boys were not allowed to live in france protected by an aide-de-camp of prince schwarzenberg they reached lake constance on the farthest limits of switzerland there after a while queen hortense converted a gloomy old country seat into a refined and beautiful home a great trial however awaited her king louis demanded the custody of their eldest son and little napoleon was taken from his mother leaving her only louis louis had always been a mother's boy frail in health thoughtful grave loving and full of sentiment hortense's life at arenenberg was varied in the winter by visits to rome her husband lived in florence and they corresponded about their boys but though they met once again in after years they were husband and wife no more indeed charming as hortense was to all the circle that surrounded her tender as a mother and devoted as a friend her conduct as a wife was not free from reproach she was a coquette by nature and it is undeniable that more than one man claimed to have been her lover after a while her son louis went for four years to college at heidelberg mother and son never forgot the possibilities that might lie before them when the italian revolution broke out in eighteen thirty two hortense went to rome both her sons being at that time in Florence with their father. Although the elder was newly married to his cousin, the daughter of King Joseph, both he and Louis were full of restlessness, and caught the revolutionary fervor. They contrived to escape from their father's house and to join the insurgents, to the great displeasure of both father and mother, but they were fired by enthusiasm for Italian liberty, and took the oaths as carbonari. King Louis and Queen Hortense were exceedingly distressed. Both foresaw the hopelessness of the Italian rising. Queen Hortense went at once to Florence to consult her husband, and it was arranged that she should go in pursuit of her sons, inducing them, if possible, to give up all connection with so hopeless a cause. But before she reached them, the insurgents, who seemed to have had no fixed plan and no competent leader, had come to the conclusion that Bonaparte's were not wanted in a struggle for republicanism. They therefore requested the young men to withdraw, and their mother went after them to Ancona. On her way she was met by her son Louis, who was coming to tell her that his brother was dead. There has always been mystery concerning the death of this young Napoleon. The accredited account is that he sickened with the measles, and died at a roadside inn on his way to Ancona. The unhappy mother went into that little town upon the Adriatic with her youngest son, but she soon found that the Austrians, having come to the help of the Pope, 
were at its gates. Louis, too, had sickened with the measles. She hid him in an inner chamber, and spread a report that he had escaped to Corfu. She had with her an English passport for an English lady, travelling to England with her two sons. She was obliged to substitute a young Italian, who was compromised, for her dead son. And as soon as Louis could rise from his bed, they set out, meeting with many adventures until they got beyond the boundaries of Italy. Under cover of their English passport, they crossed France, and visited the Chateau of Fontainebleau, where the mother pointed out to her son the scenes of his childhood. The death of the Duc de Reichstag in July 1832 caused Louis Napoleon to consider himself the head of the Napoleonic family. According to M. Claude, the French Minister of Police, he came on this occasion into Paris, and remained there long enough to dabble in conspiracy. After spending a few months in England, mother and son went back to Arenenberg, where they kept up a close correspondence with all malcontents in France. The Legitimists preferred them the House of Orléans, and the Republicans of that period, judging from their writings as well as their acts, evidently believed that Louis-Napoleon, now head of the House of Bonaparte, represented Republican principles based on universal suffrage, as well as the glories of France. One fine morning in October 1836, Louis took leave of his mother at Arenenberg, telling her that he was going to visit his cousins at Baden. Stéphanie de Beauharnais, in the days of the Empire, had been married to the Grand Duke of that little country. Queen Hortense knew her son's real destination, no doubt, for she took leave of him with great emotion, and hung around his neck a relic which Napoleon had taken from the corpse of the Emperor Charlemagne, when his tomb was opened at Aix-la-Chapelle. It was a tiny fragment of wood, said to be from the true cross, set beneath a brilliant emerald. It seems possible that this may have been the little ornament found on the neck of the Prince Imperial after his corpse was stripped by savages in Zululand. With this talisman against evil, and the wedding-ring with which Napoleon had married Josephine upon his finger, Prince Louis-Napoleon set out upon an expedition so rash that we can hardly bring ourselves to associate it with the character popularly ascribed to the third Emperor Napoleon. His plan was to overturn the government of Louis-Philippe, and then appeal to the people by a plebiscite, that is, a question to be answered yes or no by universal suffrage. This same plan he carried out successfully several times during his reign. He went from Arenenberg to Baden-Baden, where he made his final arrangements. Strasbourg was to be the scene of his first attempt, and at Baden-Baden he had an interview with Colonel Van Berry, who commanded the 4th Regiment of Artillery, part of the Strasbourg garrison. Louis Blanc, the Republican and Socialist historian, writing in 1843, speaks thus of Louis-Napoleon. Brought up in exile, unfamiliar with France, Louis Bonaparte had assumed that the bourgeoisie remembered only that the Empire had curbed the Revolution, established social order, and given France the Code Napoleon. He fancied that the working classes would follow the eagle with enthusiasm the moment it appeared, born as of old at the head of regiments and heralded by the sound of trumpets. A twofold error. The things the bourgeoisie in 1836 remembered most distinctly about Napoleon were his despotism and his taste for war, and the most lasting impression of him amongst the most intelligent in the working classes was that whilst sowing the seeds of democratic aspiration throughout Europe, he had carefully weeded out all democratic tendencies in his own dominions. But though Louis Blanc is right in saying that the evil that Napoleon did lived after him in the memories of thinking men, it is also true that those born since the fall of the Second Empire can have no idea of the general enthusiasm that still lingered in France in Louis-Philippe's reign, round memories of the glories of Napoleon. Men might not wish him back again, but they worshipped him as the national demigod. After Sedan he was pulled down literally and metaphorically from his pedestal, 
and the old feelings about him which half a century ago even foreign nations seemed to share now seem obsolete and extravagant to readers of lanfray and the books of erckmann chatrian even in eighteen thirty six when louis napoleon in secret entered strasbourg he was surprised and disappointed to find that those on whom he had counted to assist him in making the important first step in his career were very doubtful of its prudence he had counted on the cooperation of general voirol an old soldier of the empire who was in command of the department in which strasbourg was situated but when he wrote him a letter in the most moving terms appealing to his affection for the emperor the old general not only declined to join the plot but warned the prefect of strasbourg that mischief was on foot though he did not mention in what quarter the government in paris seems however to have concluded that it would be best to let a plot so very rash come to a head there was a public singer calling herself madame gordon at baden who flung herself eagerly into the conspiracy louis napoleon on quitting arenenberg had expected to meet several generals of distinction who had served under his uncle at a certain trysting-place between arenenberg and strasbourg he waited for them three days but they never came he then resolved to continue his campaign without their aid or encouragement and entered strasbourg secretly on the night of october twenty eighth eighteen thirty six the next morning he had an interview with colonel vambery who endeavoured to dissuade him from his enterprise vambery's prudent reasons made no impression on the prince and he then promised his assistance having done so louis napoleon offered him a paper securing a pension of ten thousand francs to each of his two children in case he should be killed the colonel tore it up saying quote, i give but do not sell my blood major parquin an old soldier of the empire who was in the garrison had been already won on the night of the prince's arrival the conspirators met at his lodging three regiments of infantry three regiments of artillery and a battalion of engineers formed the garrison at strasbourg the wisest counsel would have been to appeal first to the third regiment of artillery but other counsels prevailed the fourth artillery whose adhesion to the cause was doubtful was chosen for the first attempt all depended upon the impression made upon this regiment which was the one in which napoleon had served when captain of artillery at toulon the night was spent in making preparations proclamations were drawn up addressed to the soldiers to the city and to france and the first step was to be the seizure of a printing office at five o'clock in the morning the signal was given the soldiers of the fourth regiment of artillery were roused by the beating of the assemblée they rushed half dressed on to their parade ground louis napoleon whose fate it was never to be ready was not prompt even on this occasion he was finishing two letters to his mother one was to be sent to her at once if he succeeded the other if he failed on entering the barrack-yard he found the soldiers waiting drawn up in line on his arrival the colonel vambery presented him to the troops as the nephew of napoleon he wore an artillery uniform a cheer rose from the line then louis napoleon clasping a gilt eagle brought to him by one of the officers made a speech to the men which was well received his cause seemed won next followed by the troops but exciting little enthusiasm in the streets of strasbourg as he passed along them in the grey dawn of a cloudy day louis napoleon made his way to the quarters of general voirol the general emphatically refused to join the movement and a guard was at once set over him up to this moment all had smiled upon the enterprise the printing of the proclamations was going rapidly on the third regiment of artillery was bringing out its guns and horses and the inhabitants of strasbourg roused from their beds were watching the movement as spectators prepared to assist it or to oppose it according as it made its way to success or failure the prince and the troops who supported him next marched to the barracks of the infantry 
on their road they lost their way and approached the barracks in such a manner that they left themselves only a narrow alley to retreat by in case of failure on the prince presenting himself to the guard an old soldier of the army of napoleon kneeled and kissed his hand when suddenly one of the officers who had his quarters in the town rushed upon the scene with his sword drawn crying quote, soldiers you are deceived this man is not the nephew of the emperor napoleon he is an impostor a relative of colonel vambéry this turned the tide whilst the soldiers stood irresolute the colonel of the regiment arrived for a few moments he was in danger from the adherents of the prince his own soldiers rushed to his rescue a tumult ensued the little band of imperialists was surrounded and their cause was lost louis napoleon yielded himself a prisoner one or two of the conspirators among them madame gordon managed to escape the rest were captured End of section five.